Good morning, my friends. And as you are standing, if you will open up your Bible and turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. We will be starting in verse 17 of Philippians 3, reading through chapter 4, verse 1. And if you are in need of a Bible because your cell phone is out of battery, please use a pew Bible in front of you. You can find it on page 1166. Follow along with me as I read. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 17 through chapter 4, verse 1. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come this morning, we come as a family, we come as a church. Father, we humbly come, and we just thank you for your word. Father, but most of all, we thank you for Jesus, that he went to the cross, he died, rose again, taking our sin and our shame, and that he's coming again, and we thank you for that promise, and we pray, Lord, that, that he comes soon. Lord, be a Pastor Bruce as he brings this message. Open our hearts, prepare our hearts for communion to follow. We give you all the glory and praise. In your name I pray, amen. I'm sure you all know people who have made an impact on their world, on their family, their life, their community, whatever the case may be. I'm sure maybe you even know of people even now who are making an impact. And people who make an impact in their world have a single-minded commitment of reaching their goals. Whether those goals are to actually conquer the world, whether it's just to succeed in the business, succeed in their career, their job, whether it's to succeed in their studies educationally, or even to win some type of championship like the, the Chiefs today hope to do along the road to the Super Bowl, they are willing to make whatever sacrifices are necessary in order to achieve their goal. On the other hand, those who are consumed with their own comfort, with their own needs, rarely accomplish much in life. And the same is true in making your life count for the glory of God. The Apostle Paul has shown us, and hopefully you have been with us through this journey of his own testimony here in chapter 3. And as we conclude it here today, what we have seen, he has shown us through the, this chapter here that there are no hidden secrets, there are no gimmicks, there are, is only a single-minded determination to forget what lies behind and to strain forward to what lies ahead. In other words, what we saw last Sunday, to keep pressing on in the race in order to make one's life count for the glory of God. Now, Paul also is a realist. 
Paul knows, he understands that pressing on in this race in which God has set us on is not easy. And yet it is essential if we're going to finish the race. You see, Paul doesn't want to see you. He doesn't want to see me. He doesn't want to see us as a church together. He doesn't want to see us eliminated from the race in which we have begun. And so now he exhorts us in this final message. In this final section, he comes to the end and he exhorts us with everything he has to stand firm in the Lord. Why? Because Paul knows he has walked it. He knows that the life that counts for the glory of God is a life that stands firm in the Lord, period. In fact, Paul concludes now everything he's been saying in chapter 3 about making your life count for God's glory with this single exhortation here in chapter 4 in verse 1. Let me read it again. He simply says, therefore, and of course, whenever you see a therefore in the scriptures, it's always pointing us back to what has previously been said. And in this particular case, the therefore points us back to everything Paul has said here in chapter 3. And even specifically to everything he is saying now in verses 17 through 21. And so in light of what we have seen in this series of Don't Waste Your Life, in light of everything he is saying to us, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, at uh, first sounding that, that may sound a bit confusing, After all, Paul has just told us, as we saw in the last message, to keep pressing on in this race, to keep running the race. And now he's telling us to stand firm. So which is it, Paul? Because I'm not sure that I can do both at the same time, right? Are you wondering that? Is that not going through your mind? I mean, after all, does Paul mean, does he want us to to run the race or does does he want us to stand firm? And the answer is yes. He wants us to do both. You see, Paul is calling us to stand firm in the Lord while at the same time pressing on in the race. That's the idea here. And although Paul is changing the metaphors from running in a race to standing firm in a battlefield, the theme of what he's saying here in chapter 3 is still the same. And it's don't waste your life. In other words... Make it count for the glory of God. That's the overarching theme, and he's simply changing the metaphor here. In fact, this call to stand firm, it refers to a soldier faithfully staying at his post no matter what is going on around him. Let the enemy attack as he will. The soldier's orders are clear. Stand firm. In other words, stick with it. Endure. Never give up. Do not leave your post. This command is often repeated by the Apostle Paul. This is nothing new in his vocabulary. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, stand firm, let nothing move you. In 1 Corinthians 16, 13, he says, stand firm in the faith. In Philippians 1, 27, he says, stand firm in one spirit. Colossians 4, 12, stand firm in all of the will of God. 2 Thessalonians 2, 15, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you. This is important, in other words. 
Paul repeats it several times. Now, why? Why this repeated emphasis on standing firm? Because Paul had a healthy respect for the devil's attempts to discourage you and distract you. He knows that Satan is out there. He knows we are in a spiritual battle, a spiritual warfare here. He knows that Satan does not want you to make your life count. Satan wants you to waste your life. Therefore, let me discourage you. Let me defeat you so that you will quit the race and you will fall off and fall away. He knows this. He knew we would be tempted to quit when the bullets of temptation start whizzing around our heads. And so he repeats this exhortation several, several times. Stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm. At the same time, do not miss Paul's outpouring of affection that surrounds this exhortation to stand firm. His affection for the Philippian believers here is evident in verse 1 of chapter 4 by all of his expressions of love for them. Did you notice that? Look at it with me one more time. Where he says, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, my beloved. Listen, Paul loves this church. He loves these believers. They are dear to his heart. In fact, his heart, when he thought of them, it just soared with joy. He rejoices at what God has done in their lives and how far they have come in the race. And he counts them as his own crown before the Lord. And so now, as he comes to the end of this section of Philippians, it is with great love, great affection, my beloved, that he urges them and now us to do what? To stand firm in the Lord. For Paul knows that the only way To make your life count for the glory of God is to what? Stand firm in the Lord. There is no other way. So how then do we do this? How do we stand firm in the Lord as we press on in this race? Well, Paul actually tells us how. He tells us how in the last section here of Philippians chapter 3, specifically in verses 17 through 21. So let's unpack it. Let's look at it a little bit here. For the next few minutes. And what we find, first of all, he tells us, number one, if you're going to stand firm, you need to follow faithful examples of pursuing Christ. You need to follow faithful examples. Why? Listen, Paul knows something here. Whom you follow matters. Whom you hang out with matters. Especially when it comes to making your life count for the glory of God. Therefore, it's imperative that we find and follow faithful examples who are pursuing Christ and striving to follow Christ in their own lives. Paul knows the importance of following faithful examples. And so he says here in in verse 17, brothers, in other words, church, believers, Christ followers here, brothers and sisters in the Lord, join in imitating me. In other words, Paul is saying to us, think as I think, do as I do, pursue what I pursue, treasure what I treasure, count as loss what I count as loss, count as gain what I count as gain, press on in the race as I press on in the race. And by the way, Paul is not being arrogant here. Paul is not putting himself on a 
pedestal of spiritual perfection. We already know this because of what he's already confessed, what he's already admitted to us in verse 12, where he said, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but in light of that, because I am not perfect, because I have not attained of knowing Christ fully, what do I do? I press on. And as I press on, follow me. I press on to know Christ fully more and more and more. I press on to the finish line. And as I do, join me in this race of pressing on, standing firm. You see, Paul is not placing himself on a pedestal above us. Rather, he is placing himself in the race with us. And he's saying, just as I am pursuing Christ and pressing on, I invite you to follow me in that pursuit. This is simply Paul's way of saying what he has already said before in some of his other letters. For example, in 1 Corinthians 4.16, he writes, I urge you then, be imitators of me. And in 1 Corinthians 11.1, he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And notice that Paul moves beyond his own example here, and he draws the circle bigger when he goes on to say in verse 17, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. You see, Paul's just pointed to himself as an example to follow, but he also points to other faithful examples to follow as well. And in particular, in this specific case here, he's actually alluding to Timothy and Epaphroditus, whom these Philippian believers at the church here in Philippi, they would have known very well. And Paul holds them up as examples. And so he draws the bullseye around his own life. He draws a secondary circle around it. And he includes Timothy and Epaphroditus. And yet, I also believe he draws a circle even bigger than that. Including other faithful men and women in the Philippian church who are pursuing Christ. And basically, he's holding these people up as examples and saying, follow them. Imitate their walk. These Philippian believers needed faithful examples who could model to them what it looked like to make your life count for the glory of God. And let me tell you, we need that same. We desperately need to follow the same kind of faithful examples. So here's the question. Who then are you following? At this moment, right now in your life, who are you following? I know many of you, you follow somebody on Facebook, you follow a lot of people on Instagram, you follow this person, that celebrity, this sports performer, this, this, that, your friend, this peer. But the question is, are they following Christ? Are they pursuing Christ? Are we following anybody beyond what we follow on social media? Who are you following? Because remember, whom you follow matters. And so Paul says in this same verse, he basically says when he says, uh, uh, put, put your eyes on them, he's saying pay careful attention to those who are making their lives count for God's glory and follow their example and imitate their walk. You see, at this point, 
Paul's concern is not so much that we follow their beliefs as much as we follow their behavior. Although behavior always reflects beliefs. The reason we, I'm emphasizing this and making this distinction is because Paul does by the word walk. Paul uses this biblical imagery of walking to refer to the totality of one's Christian life. You see, the way a person walks is the way he or she approaches everyday life. And so that walk, you realize your walk reveals the core of your heart. Your walk, it displays the habits of one's commitments, desires, and passions. In other words, Paul's giving us some insight here, and he's telling us that a person's walk, as you observe it, as you pay careful attention to that walk, listen, you can tell a lot from a person's walk, and here's what you can tell. Whether they are wasting their life or whether they're making it count. Just look at their walk. Because their walk is telling you something. Their walk is going somewhere. Look at their walk. And in this case, Paul's telling us, don't follow the walk of those who are wasting their lives. Why would you do that? Follow those who are making their lives count for the glory of God. Imitate their walk. We need to pay careful attention to that. Mark Twain humorously wrote, few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. How true that is. But may I also say, we need more of that annoyance in our lives. We desperately need the annoyance of faithful examples around us to follow. But of course, this begs the second question that we've got to ask ourselves this morning. And that is, are you someone Worthy of being followed. You see, this is a question for everyone here. Whether you're a young adult, still in middle school, high school. Whether you're a senior adult. Whether you're a teenager, a single parent, grandparent. Whether you're an attender, member, or leader in our church. The fact of the matter is, you're either a good example or you're a bad example, and you can't opt out of being an example. Why? Because right now, someone is watching you, whether you realize it or not. Your example, your walk, is either leading that person who is watching you to either waste their lives or to make it count for the glory of God. And Paul, here at the end, he's saying, listen, if you want to make your life count for God's glory, then you need to find people who have been captured by the gospel and who are consumed with knowing Christ and follow their example. Paul says, this is how you stand firm in the Lord as you press on in the race. But he also gives us another key insight to the standing firm. And that is number two, watch out for the faithless enemies of the cross. You see, just as there are faithful examples to follow, there are also faithless examples to avoid. Paul has to issue a very sharp and sorrowful warning against these faithless examples whose walk leads down a very different path 
to a very different destination. Look what Paul writes in verses 18 and 19. He says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So if we're going to stand firm in the Lord, then Paul is telling us here, we need to, we must watch out for these, quote, enemies of the cross. Well, who's that? Who are these enemies of the cross? Well, to be quite honest with you, uh, Bible scholars debate the identity, and no one seems to be able to identify them exactly, but most Bible scholars do think that they are people who have made some sort of profession of Christ in the past, but now, now, in the present here, their walk contradicts that confession of Christ and contradicts the cross of Christ. In other words, these people now, they live a lifestyle that is seductive and ultimately destructive. And because their lives are all about self-promotion and self-gratification, they contradict the very message of the cross, which says you need forgiveness of your sins and the righteousness of Christ, and we are powerless to achieve that on our own. What this means, and I believe this, this is who he's talking about, is he's, he's referring to professing Christians who are really deceivers or pretenders. They're not true believers in Jesus Christ. We shouldn't be surprised by this because Jesus, after all, told us in Matthew chapter 13 that good seed is sown in the field and it brings up a crop, but the enemy comes along and sows tares among the wheat. We remember in our Sermon on the Mount series in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus also said that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, one Puritan writer said it this way, these are people who love God in their mouth, but, their, but the world is still in their hearts. And here's the tricky part of all of this. These Enemies of the cross that Paul is identifying for us to watch out. Listen, they are not out there. In other words, they are not pagan unbelievers who have already professed alliance with Christ. No, no, no. They're not out there. Rather, they are in here among the very family of God. Although they attend our churches and worship with us on Sundays, they are not one with us. In Christ, though. You see, we know this to be a fact. We know many people can sing the same songs. We know many can, can pray the same prayers. They can engage even in the same activities and at the same time be pretenders and actually knowing Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Sure, they speak the language of the King. But Jesus Christ is not their Lord. There's no allegiance to him. There's no cross-bearing example of denying self and following Jesus and pressing on in the race. Now, boy, this ought to just perk up our ears because this is a very sober reminder to us 
that just because someone, quote, says a prayer and professes faith in Christ doesn't make them a true believer in Jesus Christ. In fact, one, uh, Dr. Elton Trueblood, he said this several years ago. As you know, the mission field, we think of it as being global, which it is, which is why we're going to have a world outreach celebration. And even here in our country, uh, there are many unbelievers that need the gospel, need to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And yet he makes this observation that one of the mission fields that we have today, as far as America is concerned, is right here within the church itself. So the question that we need to ask ourselves here this morning is, are you a true believer in Jesus Christ? What say you, young people? Are you truly a believer in Jesus Christ? What say you, rest of the church? Do you know Christ as your Lord and Savior? Or are you simply a pretender? And you're here because your parents are here. Or you're here because your kids are here. What are you? Does your walk contradict your confession of Christ and his cross? Or is it consistent with your profession of Jesus Christ? That's what Paul's getting at here. And don't miss Paul's emotion when he writes about all this. When he refers to these enemies of the cross, he says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. Like, what? what? What's that? Why is Paul crying? Is he a baby? No, 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 no. Paul is a man, believe me. He's a man's man, and yet he is weeping for these people. Notice this in your notes. The reason he's weeping is because there are many who are wasting their lives as enemies of the cross. Their walk contradicts their confession of Christ and his cross, and this breaks the heart of Paul. What alarms Paul is not this group's divergence from the gospel in doctrine, but rather their departure from the cross in their lives. And this is why Paul weeps as he writes about them. Paul is moved to tears because these people, whom he probably knows by name, he knows some of them personally, he, they claim to belong to Jesus. And yet their walk, how they live, contradicts the cross of Christ. Whatever words they may speak. In fact, what's interesting, this is actually the only place in the New Testament where Paul speaks of crying in the present tense. In other words, when you read this, you need to see these verses spotted with tears of the Apostle Paul for these people. And so let us take Paul's tears as a reminder that we should be brokenhearted that so many people are wasting their lives as they pursue the treasures of this world instead of the very treasure of Christ. We, when we see people wasting their lives who have professed Christ 
and it seems they're walking away from all that. Listen, it should provoke us to a greater pity and even a greater passion to do everything we can to pray for them and to rescue them with the saving grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so with tears streaming down his face, Paul now describes these enemies of the cross in detail. In fact, he says this is what marks their lives, and he gives us four characteristics of them. Notice this pretty quickly here. First of all, their destiny. He says their end is destruction. Those who live as enemies of the cross are ultimately headed for destruction. They're on a path towards judgment. Those who live their lives without submitting to the message of the cross are headed for eternal judgment in hell. But don't think that that means that they will just simply cease to exist in hell. No. In fact, what's interesting, whenever Jesus used the word destroy in the Gospels, it never meant to pass out of existence, but to be delivered up to misery. This terrifying future existence of the unbeliever without Christ is described all through the New Testament as eternal hopelessness, wasted lives, everlasting torment, irredeemable lostness, never-ending darkness, eternal despair, and banishment from the very presence of God. You see, the question is not, does a person cease to exist? The question is, where will that person exist for eternity? And the answer to that question, let me tell you, it brought tears streaming down Paul's face for those people. Why? Because their destiny, their end is destruction. And then he says their master, notice this, their master, their God is their belly. That word belly, it's a wonderful word that captures their devotion to bodily appetites. But don't think just for food. It's, it's especially alluding to sex. Satisfying such lustful urges is their highest aim in life. This is what they live for. Pleasing self served as their functional God of their life. They are slaves to their lust. They can't control themselves. They go wherever their appetites lead them. What a way to live, right? Oh, and they do this in the name of freedom, throwing off all restraints. But in reality, they are enslaved. They are in bondage to their lust for more and more thrills that never ultimately satisfies. What motivates them is not concern for Christ and his kingdom, but rather the glorification, the gratification of their physical lust. They have traded the good and glorious God that made them for a pathetic little God that can do nothing for them except leave them feeling empty, leave them feeling guilty and shameful. Why? Because their God, their master, is their their belly, their sensual desires. That's what they live to fulfill. And then he says their disgrace, their glory is in their shame. Paul is saying that these people find their greatest glory in that which is shameful. In other words, the very things that they should be ashamed of, they boast in and brag about. And that is the culture in which we live today. They flaunt their sexuality. They think nothing of moving from bed to bed in sexual immorality. They openly pursue sensual pleasure. In essence, think of it this way. 
they celebrate what offends our holy God. In fact, they are most proud of their worst perversions. It's a lifestyle that says, I don't need you, God. I call the shots. I have my freedom. I'll live my life the way I want. These enemies of the cross, like so many today, they took great pride in being, quote, enlightened and liberated. But in reality, they are living in darkness. They are living in bondage to their sin. And we, you may ask, well, why is that? Because their perspective is so warped. This brings us to the fourth mark characteristic. Their minds are set on earthly things. In other words, these people put their heart, they put their hope in the things of this world. They are literally captivated by the things of earth, which, by the the way, is the opposite of what Paul was captivated by. Paul was captivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's consumed with knowing Christ. These people, on the other hand, are captivated by the things of earth, and they are consumed with pursuing the pleasures of this world. Life is all about living in the moment. It's all about doing whatever feels good at the time. There is no thought about eternity, no thought of spiritual reality that transcends this physical life and world. There's no vision of anything beyond themselves or advancing their own cause in this world. As one pastor writes, materialism is their highest religion. Fashion is their sacred liturgy. Celebrities are their priestly guides. Possessions are their greatest reward. And earth is their heaven. And so with tears streaming down his cheeks, Paul informs this church at Philippi that for these, quote, enemies of the cross, earth will be the closest they will ever get to heaven. Man, forget their resume. This will be their obituary. Their minds were set on earthly things. Their glory was in their shame. Their God was their belly. And now their end is eternal destruction in hell. Here's Paul's point. When it comes to standing firm in the Lord, who you follow matters. Proverbs 13.20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So don't become a fool by following the ways of such foolish people as these enemies of the cross. In other words, don't imitate their walk. Why? Because their walk leads to a wasted life. Follow faithful examples of those who are making their lives count for the glory of God and imitate their walk of pursuing Christ and pressing on to the race. The third and final key to standing firm in the Lord is to then live in light of your true citizenship in heaven. Live in light, in other words, of your true identity in Christ. Paul concludes with this glorious reminder in verse 20 where he says, but our, and that word but is a contrast. In other words, he just got through saying in the previous verse, in verse 19, that the enemies of the cross, their mind is set on what? Earthly things. But us, us who are true believers in Christ, our mind is where? It's in heaven. 
Why? Because our citizenship is in heaven. Those words would have had special meaning to these Philippian believers since they were granted Roman citizenship, even though they were 800 miles from the imperial capital. You see, they lived in the city of Philippi, but their citizenship was in Rome. And in a similar way, yes, we live here on earth, but our citizenship... Our true citizenship is in heaven. Therefore, Paul says, live in light of that. Sam Gordon writes, he says, as a Christian, you live on planet earth, but you belong to another world. You set up your tent here, but you don't put down roots here. Christians are not vagabonds without a home. We are not fugitives on the run from home. We are pilgrims traveling home. Now, this reality... Man, it ought to make a huge impact in our lives. It ought to make a huge difference in how we live if we'll embrace it and apply it. You see, the city that defines your identity, get this, is not the one in which you were born in, nor the one in which you were raised in. But rather, it is the city toward which you are moving. You see, writing to people raised in the pagan culture of a Macedonian city, Paul declares to these Philippian believers, he declares to them, listen, your true identity here on this earth is now defined by a city that they have never seen nor have visited. Therefore, Paul is telling them, he's exhorting them, just as he is us, that this heavenly citizenship, let it control your character and conduct in the present here on earth, even though we have not reached yet our eternal home. In the same way, although we have not yet seen heaven, our status as its citizens should make a difference in our lives now. It should transform our passions, our priorities, and our values. In other words, who we are no longer is determined by where we have come from, but instead by where we are going. This is why Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, Listen to what he writes in the first five verses. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ. You know what that means? If then you are a true believer, you've been born again, the gospel has redeemed you. If that is true of you, Paul says this, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And now Paul says this. He says, then, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he lists off such things as sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Do you understand the impact that this heavenly citizenship should have on our lives now? Does this mean anything to you? Does, does, do you connect with this? You see, and if this reality of our heavenly citizenship, l- listen to me, if it is not impacting your life now, if it's, if it's not changing how you live now, if your mind is still set on earthly things, then perhaps, 
perhaps you should consider that your true citizenship is not in heaven and it is still here on earth. But for those whose citizenship is truly in heaven, notice what Paul says in verses 20 and 21. He says, and from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And in, right here in these verses, Paul, in a sense, he gives us these two evidences of our heavenly citizenship. So if you're sitting there right now and you're wondering, well, am I truly a citizen of heaven or is my citizenship really still here on earth? Perhaps I'm an enemy of the cross. Where is my citizen? I'm not sure. Here's two ways to help evaluate that. And the first way is this. One is, if uh, those of us with true citizenship in heaven, we are awaiting eagerly for the Lord Jesus Christ to return. Now notice this. Our hope is not in the coming of the Lord, but rather our hope is in the Lord who is coming. In other words, we're not waiting for an event to bail us out. We are waiting for a person that we know as our Savior and Lord. And so heaven is not just about a place. Heaven is about a person. And we are eagerly waiting for that person to return. Paul wants us to see here that what makes heaven heavenly, what makes our citizenship a source of boundless joy, is the presence of a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, one of the ways to tell if a person is really, 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 truly a citizen of heaven is he or she wants, can't wait to see Jesus. They can't wait to see their Savior. Because after all, if you're not a citizen of heaven and you hear a believer say, Jesus is coming, that doesn't really excite you too much. You're like, man, big deal. In fact, they walk away and go, they're, they're kind of whacked out. It does nothing for you. Jesus is coming. And you like hear that and you're like, yeah, and? That's an indication perhaps your citizenship is not in heaven. But if you're a citizen of heaven, it's like, yes, I can't wait to see Jesus. Woo! Man, that's your reaction to that. Why? Because one of the evidences of a true citizenship in heaven is we are waiting, we are anticipating, we cannot wait for the Lord Jesus to return. Number two, Paul says, we're expecting a glorious transformation of our earthly bodies. Now, if you've ever gone to Enterprise to rent a car, sometimes they run out of the cars that you actually reserve, and you get an upgrade. Anybody ever here got an upgrade on a rental car? It's kind of nice, isn't it? You're like, whoa, man, I feel first class. Or maybe you got even an upgrade to first class on an airline, air flight. It's a nice thing. So think of it this way. Your body's going to get an upgrade. A glorious, wonderful, upgraded body is going to be yours for all eternity. And people ask, well, how am I going to look when I'm in heaven? And the answer is, better. <laughs> Much better. 
you're going to get the body you always dreamed of. Paul says, Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Our Savior, listen to me, this is awesome. He has already rescued us from God's wrath on the cross. That is wonderful, but that's not all that he has in store for us. You see, Jesus will now also rescue us from the toxic byproducts of humanity's rebellion and sin in this world. When Jesus returns, he is going to raise our lowly bodies, our earthly bodies, our sin-stained bodies, our suffering-scarred bodies from the dead, and he's going to give us glorious bodies like his. You say, well, how will this happen, Bruce? I'm glad you asked. Paul says that Jesus will transform us. Notice this in Paul's words here. He says, by the power that enables him, that is Jesus, even to subject all things to himself. So here's how it's going to happen. If Jesus can subject all things to himself, which he will, then he can easily transform our lowly bodies. And when Paul says all things, he means that every part of creation will be brought under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And in light of that truth, in light of these truths, Paul says, let us stand firm in this hope. Let us follow faithful examples of pursuing Christ. Let us live in light of our true citizenship, which is not here, it is in heaven. And in doing so, let us, let us make our lives count for the glory of God. So here's the concluding question to the series. It's a question we are confronted with. It's a question we are challenged by. Are you wasting your life or are you making it count? Are you wasting your life Or are you making it count? And listen to me, no matter where you are in that spectrum, no matter where you are in your life, there's the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We always have hope in the gospel to make our lives count. Listen, notice this, with God's power, with God's gospel power, listen, it is never, 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 never too late to begin making your life count for God's glory. So no matter where you are right now, at this moment in your life, you can begin to make it count for the glory of God when you turn to Jesus Christ. You can make it count, and it starts by coming to the cross. That's what we saw in the very first message. It starts at the cross It starts with receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It starts by repenting of your sin and acknowledging, I need a Savior and I cannot save myself and His name is Jesus. It starts at the cross. It continues by losing all to gain Christ. And it also then means living a Christ-centered life. It means pressing on in the race and finally standing firm in the Lord. Listen, here's Paul's plea. And as your pastor, it is my plea. Don't, don't be one of those many who are wasting their lives by pursuing these treasures of the world. 
Instead, be like Paul. Be like Timothy, Epaphroditus, some of these other believers in the church of Philippi, and make your life count by pursuing the treasure of Jesus Christ. As we enter into a time of participating in communion, by which we remember our Lord's sacrifice for our sins and our victory over death, listen to what Paul writes about our Lord in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Having this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace and hope we have in Jesus Christ. May we only be satisfied with Jesus instead of pursuing the pleasures of this world. May Jesus, by the power that enables him to bring all things under his control, cause us to stand firm in him till he returns. And now, Lord, as we come to participate in communion, may once again we be reminded of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ so that we might have a citizenship that is in heaven with him for all eternity. If you have confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord by trusting him for your salvation and identifying with him in baptism and committing to his body and membership of a local church, then I invite you to participate in communion. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christ follower, that is, you have yet to confess Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, then I invite you to watch what we, the church, participate in. And when you watch, I pray that you will see a picture of God's grace and love for you as the church eats and drinks these symbols of grace. For the bread represents the body of Jesus. The juice represents the blood of Jesus when he died on the cross. And it reminds us who our Lord is. It reminds us what he has done for us and is still doing for us and yet will do for us when he returns. And so as the music begins to play, feel free to stand and walk toward one of the four tables throughout the auditorium to participate in communion. You may take the bread and cup back to your seat to eat and drink and even offer a prayer of thanksgiving for God's grace in your own life.